This podcast may include adult content. Bound Off is an independent, non-profit audio magazine committed to paying authors for their work. To join us in our mission of broadcasting great stories to a worldwide audience, visit boundoff.com slash donate. Welcome to Bound Off, a literary audio broadcast. In this edition, we have two stories. The Whole Situation by Andrea Nealon and Shades of Blue by Ashley Calger. The Whole Situation, written by Andrea Nealon, read by Kelly Shriver. Listing time, 2 minutes, 20 seconds. The Whole Situation, by Andrea Neeland. I was elected Speaker of the World, somewhere around midnight. I questioned the validity of the appointment, since there were no ballot boxes or Supreme Court justices involved in the process. My friend Jeff, the appointing official, raised his beer at me before choking out a prolonged smoky cough. The weed smelled like love. His girlfriend stared through me, waited patiently. I knew it probably didn't make any difference what I said, that the earth would keep spinning and no one would hear me and that all my life all the people I loved would keep moving along, oblivious, like lobsters fumbling over themselves on the other side of the aquarium glass. A thought proposed itself to me and lingered. That I might be the lobster. That the whole situation might be reversed. I checked my fists for rubber bands. I retracted and extended my fingers. Retract. Extend. Retract. Extend. This went on for a while. I remembered that I was expected to speak. I became nervous. I realized that this might be my only chance to make a difference to leave any trace of myself upon the world, and that if I didn't speak, this could be the biggest opportunity I ever let go. That had always been my problem, letting opportunities swim by me all my life, moving along, oblivious, like dirty little goldfish behind the aquarium glass. Again, I became confused, but was not sure how to confirm that I was not a fish. Retracting and extending my fingers did not help. I wondered if Jeff elected me so I would sleep with him. I had been planning on it before he informed me of my new title, but now I knew that I was important. I could do better than him. From this point on, the most he'd ever get out of me was a hand job. With some effort, I stood myself up on the couch, braced my legs, pulled my spine erect, glowered at the inhabitants of the room. Jeff, his dog, his girlfriend. I prepared myself the end. Andrea Nealon is the author of The Birds and the Beasts. Her work has appeared or is forthcoming in places like Barrel House, American Letters and Commentary, Cake Train, Pank, Quick Fiction, Corium, and Weird Tales. She is a web editor for Hobart. Shades of Blue Written by Ashley Calger. Read by Ann Rushton. Listening time, 8 minutes. Everybody wore blue to Tommy Dillman's funeral. They wore blue because it had been Tommy's favorite color, and because Megan Dillman, Tommy's mom, insisted that it was less sad that way. 
less like mourning Tommy's death and more like celebrating his life, or celebrating that Tommy had gone to a better place now, because Megan had suddenly become a firm believer in the afterlife. So everybody wore blue because Megan said they had to, and nobody wanted to upset Megan any further. But most of the mourners who crowded into the small sanctuary wore navy blues and dark, dark blues, blues so deep they may as well have been black. Megan, though, wore powder blue, baby blue, the blue of a temperate sky. And she wore a summer dress that was at least two sizes too small, as was evidenced by the froth-colored flesh oozing around each spaghetti strap and spilling over the edges at the top. Everybody said she looked radiant, lovely. Everybody said she looked just like she had ten years before. Nobody acknowledged what that number meant. Ten years. Ten years ago. Ten years ago before Tommy had been born. The dress was, in fact, from the era of Megan's life, the time before the baby fat and the exhaustion. She had been hanging on to it all these years in the hopes that she might one day be able to wear it again. It was, after all, her favorite summer dress, and having it hanging in her closet served as a constant reminder of how she once looked, how she knew she would look again as soon as she got around to losing the weight. And she had lost some of it, almost 15 pounds, but it had come off slowly, two or three pounds a year. And she still couldn't fit into that pale blue spaghetti strap dress, not well, not so that she actually looked right in it. The fact that she had chosen to wear it even though she couldn't really pull it off, well, nobody could quite decide what it meant. Was it because it was the only thing she owned that was just the right shade of blue? Was it some sort of statement about starting over, about setting the clock back? They argued about it afterwards, when they went home to their own still-alive children, when they were no longer face-to-face -face with the strangely serene smile that Megan turned on every single person as they stepped through the sanctuary's double doors. So glad you could come, she'd smile and say. Tommy would be happy to know that so many people cared. Of course, it wasn't for Tommy that most of them were there. It was for Megan, and even then it was partly just for the sake of it. Because it was a small town, and Tommy was a six-year-old boy. Because nothing brings people together like a tragedy. And anyway, a typical six-year-old boy hasn't done much to affect the lives of an entire town's worth of people, even a small town, even a town as small as this. A six-year-old boy plays cops and robbers in his backyard. He throws rocks at the windows of passing cars and then cries when he hears the crash. He flies kites that get tangled in the limbs of tall trees and then leaves the kites there as though no adult would have helped him to get it down if he had simply asked. And Tommy was the most typical of six-year-old boys. Tommy was the sort that nobody's aware of until he climbs to the top of the Southwark Creek Bridge and dives headfirst into the shallow water. Tommy was the sort of boy who seemed more there in his absence than he ever had when he actually been around. But since he wasn't around anymore, he was no longer a typical six-year-old boy. He was a dead six-year-old boy, and that turned him into something magical and heartbreaking, the stuff of small-town legends. And so most everybody in the town, everybody with any heart, showed up 
to the tiny church and filed one by one into the stuffy sanctuary, pausing to shake hands with Megan, who nobody had expected to be greeting them at the entrance. I'm so sorry for your loss, Megan, they would say, or Tommy was a remarkable little boy. And Megan smiled with off-putting tranquility as she squeezed their hands and patted their shoulders and said, he would be so happy to know you came over and over and over again. At least the rest of the family, Tommy's dad, Hank, and Tommy's grandparents, the widow Martin and Grandma and Grandpa Dillman, all looked solemn. Grammy Martin was even crying, which was comforting somehow. That's the way you're supposed to be, the people of the town each thought to themselves, not dressed in light, light blue and smiling. You were supposed to be beside yourself with grief because it was tragic, the death of this boy who could have grown up to be anything, an astronaut, the president, a brilliant scientific mind. It was tragic, of course, because nobody knew what Tommy Dillman would have grown up to become. They didn't know that in a few years he would have gotten a girl pregnant, a 12-year-old girl, and he only age 14, and immediately after denying his role in the whole thing, he would have gone to live with his Grammy for a while. Nobody would ever know that during his stay with Grammy Martin, Tommy would have thrown raucous parties, all but obliterating his grandmother's house, and that he would eventually have snuck off one night at age 16 taking his grandmother's debit and credit cards with him. And nobody knew either that Tommy Dillman would have burned down his grandma and grandpa Dillman's farm in a drunken rage one evening had he lived. At age 27, during a visit, Tommy Dillman would have gotten into an argument with his grandpa, and in a childish attempt at having the last word, Tommy would have set fire to the fields, and then to the farmhouse itself, before taking off in his grandparents' truck. The truck would have been recovered the next day, totaled in a ditch on the side of the highway, but the farm would have been lost forever. But now these things would never be just like Tommy Dillman would never zero out the college fund that his parents started for him at his birth. Zero it out, and not for college, either. Now his parents wouldn't have to one day hear the news that their son has been arrested for not making his child support payments. For another child, a second child, who the Dillmans wouldn't even have known about. Or that their son is under suspicion for an email scam in which he contacted several thousand strangers and asked them to donate money so he could afford to treat his fictional cancer. Not knowing the things that never would now come to be, everybody took their seats at Tommy Dillman's funeral, thinking of things that had been, the things that would be no longer. Images of a little boy playing ball at the park, a seven-year-old with pockets full of halves of inchworms, because he had learned that you could chop them just so in the middle, and they would become two living worms instead of one. The time Tommy shoplifted a handful of gummy bears from the grab and bag, and then, fraught with the guilt of it, vomited them up in a colorful mess in the parking lot. A giddy six-year-old boy, jumping from the swing set at the crest of his upswing, so that he could fly as high as he could go, could reach his peak, before being pulled once again back down to the ground. The end. Ashley Calger's short story collection, Peter Never Came, which includes Shades of Blue, 
is forthcoming through Autumn House Press. It was just awarded first prize in Autumn House Press's Fiction Contest. She is also the editor of the online literary journal MFA MFU. Listener-supported Bound Off is made possible by a grant from the Kern Family Foundation. Further support comes from the Google Grants Program. Thanks for listening to this edition of Bound Off. Copyright Bound Off and the respective authors. All rights reserved. Visit our website at boundoff.com for information about our broadcasts and how to submit your stories.